our series because, I mean, we were, I was laughing with, with Benjamin earlier of, oh, we're singing Christmas songs already. Um, and, and sometimes I think that the Christmas songs we sing or that what we hear around this time of year, it becomes so familiar that we don't even know where the words come from. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We don't even know what that means. It's just what we do because it's the, the, this time of year. But if you were to actually look at a lot of the, the Christmas phrases, the Christmas words that you see on cards or on banners, that a lot of them actually come from the book of Isaiah. I, I heard one person call it the, the Christmas prophet um, because so many of the prophecies of Jesus that are quoted in the New Testament is fulfilled in the birth of Christ um, come in this book. Now, someday, uh, of course, we, we've taken us, we've been in Luke for over a year, so there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. So, Lord willing, someday we'll preach all the way through the book of Isaiah, section by section. Um, um, I, would, I would love to do that because it's an, a beautiful, incredible book. And it's actually kind of unfortunate in some ways um, that we generally look at only the Christmas passages in this book. Um, but I, but it's, that itself is still uh, worthwhile. Um, and just a very, before I read our text for today, I just want to very briefly give you an overview of just the, the context. And, it, and at first that feels like, okay, we'll start off a new series with tons of ancient Near Eastern history. But really it's important because we're being dropped into a book that's relating to real people at real places in real times. And that's, what God's, that's why God's word is actually relevant for our lives because it is relating to real history and real people. Uh, but as, as Mark said, that is also what can make us have to read slowly and, and be careful in, in how we read. Um, so this is about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, the prophet Isaiah was, was ministering to the, the southern tribe of Israel called Judah because at this point, for a couple hundred years, Israel had been divided north and south between the north, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, the south called um, Judah, and they had been at each other's throats and for all of that time. And, and that the pattern for Israel all along is the pattern that, that we ourselves have in our lives where we hear God's word, we hear his standard, and we walk away from him and turn to other things for life and satisfaction over and over again. And so at this point, um, Israel is, the, the northern tribe of Israel is about to go into captivity in Assyria. Syria is this big nation to the east in what is modern day Iraq just looming over the people. Um, and, it's, and they're going to take over the north because of their sin and rebellion against God. The south is really no better, that they're following in the same paths, as we'll see, are afraid of, of what, will, what will come. So that's just our, our context. Um, if you have your Bible, then turn to Isaiah chapter 7. If you're using the, the Pew Bible, this is on page 571. So again, Isaiah chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 1. And the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league 
with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit, the upper pool, on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Jabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, again spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are dropped into complicated political intrigue 2,700 years ago, and yet we know that your word, your promises, what you say to us here is, is just as relevant, just as important for us to hear and understand as it was for them at that time. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, I, I pray that we could walk through this, that your word would be clear, uh, that it would be and brought to bear in our lives, Lord, that you would change us, renew us, strengthen us. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you think about it, the idea of fear on the one hand and, and trust on the other are, are connected. Um, if you're afraid of economic downturn, you're really 
afraid of either financial institutions or of the stock market. If you're afraid of losing your job, you don't trust your boss. If you're afraid of, of hospitals, you maybe don't trust your doctor or you don't trust your insurance company. And it's really this, this reality of fear and trust that we see at work here in this, in this passage. Because I, I was mentioning a moment ago this, this, this history that backs it up, but really, as is often the case in modern politics, uh, there's this, this sense of fear and trust, or maybe a lack of trust. Because the kingdom of Syria, in what is now modern-day Syria, and then the kingdom of northern Israel, called Ephraim here in our, in our text, um, they're looking to the east and they see this vast power of Assyria massing and that they're going to sweep across the known world. They're going to take everything over. I mean, it's a, a terrifying prospect. I mean, it's, it's like Poland right before the start of World War II, you know, knowing that, okay, we're sandwiched between Nazi Germany and the, the Soviet Union. This is not going to turn out uh, well for us. And so in their fear, um, they say, well, maybe we can make an alliance. And so both northern Israel, Ephraim, and Syria form this anti-Assyria coalition. But then the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, they're also afraid, afraid of Assyria, but they're also afraid because they don't trust that Ephraim and Syria are actually strong enough. And so they don't want to join this anti-Assyria coalition. And, of course, then the, the fear and the lack of trust intensifies because then northern Israel and Syria become afraid now to the east of Assyria, and they're afraid of the south, of Judah. Uh, and so they, they concoct this plan that they'll invade Judah, try to take over Jerusalem, and essentially try to take out the, the, their enemy to the south before their enemy from the, the east arrives. And so look at how all of this is described in verse 1. I'll, I'll read it again. It says that in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, so there's the southern kingdom, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so you see there, it, it, it describes that the king of Judah, Ahaz, he's, he's afraid, he's, he's trembling. His people are trembling with him. And, and I, the image is, is they're shaking like trees in the wind. And it, it reminds me of what you see on TV when a hurricane blows into Florida. You know, the trees are just being whipped back and, and forth in the storm. And, and that's the way they were in their fear, uh, that they, they couldn't trust Ephraim, they couldn't trust Syria, couldn't trust Assyria. But then ultimately, they weren't trusting their God, the, the God of Israel, to protect them and defend them. And so it's often the case when we're afraid and we think we can't trust one thing, we look for something else to trust. And so they begin searching, can we trust our military? Can we trust the, the wall of Jerusalem? Can we trust our water supply or our food supply? Or can we trust the Egyptians? Is there anything or anyone that we can trust? 
and therefore not be afraid. And so it's in this, this vacuum then of, of trust and of fear that God sends Isaiah to meet King Ahaz as he was, it says, inspecting the water supply of Jerusalem, uh, probably preparing for the coming invasion. And he, he essentially says to Ahaz that he, you're right, you shouldn't trust Syria or Ephraim or Assyria, but you're wrong to, to mistrust the God of Israel. Because really, if you're trusting in the Holy One of Israel, you don't need to be afraid of, of anything or anyone. And as you think about your life today, as I think about my life, I think that we can all think of ways that we're at least tempted to be afraid of, of something or of someone, where we're afraid of maybe losing a job or losing a loved one or afraid of instability in the world or afraid of, of something to do with our health or um, afraid that we won't have um, friends at some point in the future or that we'll somehow make a, a fool of ourselves or a failure. There's so many things that we can be afraid of. And so as you think about that, that place of fear, what would it look like for you to trust God in that place? And what would it actually take for you to trust him in the place where you're afraid? And that's really what, what Isaiah is trying to show Ahaz, trying to show Israel in this text, is no, really, you can trust God and not be afraid. And, and we see here three reasons that we can trust God and his promises. So the first is we can trust him because he gives us promises. The second, that we can trust him because he gives us signs. And then third, that we can trust him because he gives us himself. So we can trust him because he gives us promises, he gives us signs, and then he gives us ultimately himself. And so first, we can trust him because he gives us promises. And this is what we see God making promises in this text. Because we said Judah is afraid of, of Syria and of Ephraim that are preparing this invasion. And so look at then how, how God comes to them through the prophet Isaiah in verse 4. He says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the king and the son of Ramalia. And so essentially God is, is giving these four commands, four different aspects of, of the same reality. He's saying, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. And so essentially what he's calling the people to is really clear. He couldn't be much clearer. But then he grounds it even more and says that really Syria and Ephraim are just, they're firebrands, there's, there's smoke, but there's no fire, there's no real power, there's no real strength, even though they look big and scary on the outside. And then look at what God says next in verse 5. He says, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king. 
in the midst of it. And just as a, a side note there, you say, who is Tabil? I've never heard of him. And that's the point. <laughs> We've never heard of him because the plan didn't succeed. Because verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And so God's making this, this glorious promise. It shall not stand. It won't come to pass. So he's saying, I'm sovereign over history. So I can predict the future. I'm, I'm sovereign over, over time, over plans, that I'm the one directing what is going to happen here. And really, compared to me and my power and my might and my sovereignty, these nations of Ephraim and Syria, they're, they're nothing. They're nothing to, to be afraid of. It's this enormous promise. But then, for a second, we'll, we'll cut Ahaz a little bit of slack and try to put ourselves in his place for a second. Because, I mean, human beings, we are, are visual creatures. And so he sees the power of Assyria. He sees the power of Syria and Ephraim. And so these are the things that seem, that seem real, that seem kind of present in his experience. But then this prophet comes to him and speaks these, these words, saying, it's not going to happen, it's not going to stand you don't need to be afraid, but these are <laughs> invisible words from an invisible God that seem to, to fly in the face of everything that he sees around him, all of the evidence before him. And so trusting God almost seems foolish. It seems foolish because what if he doesn't prepare for war? And the prophet is wrong, and he sets up his nation for, for failure and destruction. It, it seems like a risk that is, is too big to take. And I think that, that this is often how you and I feel as well. Because even though we have different promises from what Ahaz had here, that God has given us even greater promises, that, that he's told us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He says that in Christ that, that nothing can separate us from his love. He, he promises that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. He promises that if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ that we can be adopted into his family, counted righteous, have complete assurance of, of salvation. He promises that that in Christ we have the hope of resurrection bodies, like Christ's resurrection bodies, that these are all real promises from God. But then we say, well, is it really true? There are the, the invisible words from an invisible God that, that seem too good to be true. And so we end up thinking that, well, maybe it's safer to, to mistrust God. Maybe it's, it's safer to go with the the worldly wisdom of, of human strength. Maybe it's safer to live for yourself rather than to, to live for Christ. Maybe it's safer to look for, for human strength and power rather than the power of God. And so we've seen that he's a God who makes promises. But then second, we can trust God because he also gives us signs. Because look at, at verse 9 in your Bible that God tells Ahaz that unless he is firm in faith, he'll never be firm at all. And just before that, he, he had reinforced the fact that 
Each of these nations is only as strong as its capital, and its capital is only as strong as its king, and the kings are pretty weak, and you need to trust God, and if you don't have faith, you won't be firm at all. And that's true for us as well, that, that unless we are firm in faith, we'll never be firm at all. We'll be blown back and forth in every wind of doctrine. We'll, we'll always have something or, or someone to be afraid of. But I think we know that for, for people like us, though, that faith isn't always easy because we're weak, that we want to believe on some level, um, but the promises actually just seem too good to be true. And that's, I think, how Ahaz felt as well, that, yeah, the, this promise, it, it's too good to be true. It seems foolish. It, it won't stand. What can mere words do against Ephraim, against Syria, against the power of Assyria. So he refused to trust the promises of God. But then it's remarkable how God responds then. He, instead of erupting in anger, that he makes one of the most gracious, compassionate offers in the Bible. Look at, at verse 10. He says, And the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be, Deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. And so essentially what, what God is saying here is, okay, Ahaz, you hear my, my promises, you hear my word to you, what would it take for you to trust me so that you won't be afraid? That I'll give you the glorious promises, but I'll give you glorious signs. So, so ask anything. It can be as as deep as you want. It can be as high as you want. Uh, there's, there's no limit. Ask for any sign you want, and I'll give it to you so that you will believe my promises. And it's interesting to think about that. You know, we were in his shoes. If we were in the shoes of Ahaz and God offered, I'll give you any sign so that you will believe my promises and trust me and, and not be afraid. What would we ask for? And, and maybe it would be the kinds of miracles that we see in the Bible that we see the sea being parted so you can cross on dry land, or, or you see the sun standing still, um, or you see a donkey talk, or um, there's, there's so many miracles that seem so, so grand that, okay, if I saw that, I, I would believe, or, or maybe things that seem closer to home of, well, God, I'll, I'll believe if you, if you put a million dollars into my bank account, or um, I'll believe if my, my team wins the, the Super Bowl, or I'll, I'll, I'll trust you if the person that I, that I want to date becomes interested in me. Or there's so many ways that people would say, okay, if, I, if this happened in my life, then I could actually trust God. But I think that this is where we actually then need to, to be careful. Uh, because uh, John Calvin, he makes, in commenting on this passage, makes this really helpful distinction between supernatural signs and ordinary signs. Because sometimes in the Bible, God does give these supernatural signs to vindicate his promises. Uh, in fact, we even see it in um, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, uh, that it was a very similar situation where it looked like Assyria was going to take Jerusalem, and, and God promised that that wouldn't happen, it wouldn't stand. And so he gave the, the sign that the making the shadow of the sun move back 10 steps. This really kind of remarkable, unimaginable, cosmic sign that his, his word is true. 
But most of the time, God gives us uh, not supernatural signs, but more ordinary signs. In a way, even that's what baptism, the Lord's Supper are. They're these visual, tactile things that God uses to help us as, as weak people to visualize invisible spiritual truth about God and the gospel. Uh, that he gives us gospel promises and words, and then he gives it to us in, in pictures in the, in the sacraments and in, in symbols and in signs, just as he gave these promises to Ahaz in words and then was going to back it up in, in signs to confirm his promises. But I think that as we think about this, that, that it shows something about the, the nature of, of faith and about being firm in faith, that, that God doesn't expect us to rely on blind faith alone. Yes, we're called to be firm in faith, but in, but in many ways, true biblical faith is one of the most reasonable, rational things in the universe. Um, you know, an example of this is imagine you're flying at 30,000 feet, and for Bob's sake, we'll say it's Boeing that you're on, and it's, it's functioning wonderfully, and um, you know, it's a smooth flight, no turbulence, and then somebody says, well, why don't you just open up that side door there and jump out without a parachute? You would say, that's ridiculous. Why would I ever do that? And, but in a way, if you think about it, you are putting your faith in that plane. You're putting your faith in that flight crew but it's the most reasonable, rational place to put your trust, and anything else would actually be um, absurd. And that's, if, if God is really the God of the universe, that's the way it is with God, that, that he is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, that we can never comprehend anything more loving, more gracious, more holy, more good, more perfect, that he, there's nothing more that we could ever imagine in the universe to trust. And so, thankfully then, God actually shows us this. He shows it in his word, but he even shows it in nature and creation itself. Because turn in your, your Bible briefly to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And this isn't so much talking about signs um, to confirm belief, but but in a way, though, saying that, that all of creation is a sign that proclaims that God is there and that his promises are true. So Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So he's saying that as people are, are rejecting God and his promises, that they're not rejecting something that, that they don't know, but he says, actually, you know it, that it's plain. God is showing it to them. And he says, for his invisible attributes. So saying what is visible, invisible about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so you see what, what Paul's saying is that, that the, the invisible reality of God and his word is made, is made visible just in the creation itself. And so that means that we are without an excuse, that, that all of creation is screaming the reality of God. And so maybe even today, you're afraid of something and you hear the promises of God, 
but you're not really sure, can I trust God in that place? And you say, well, I, I would trust him if he would just give me more evidence. I would trust him if he would just do to me what he did to Ahaz and offer a sign or a miracle or something so that I could believe and not be afraid. But perhaps God actually has already given us signs. He's given us supernatural signs that we see recorded in the Word. He's given us ordinary signs that visualize his work. But he also has given us the, the witness of creation, the witness of Holy Scripture itself. And, he, and he's given us himself. And this brings us then to our, our third and, and final observation here. Because we've said that we can trust God because he gives us promises. He gives us signs. But ultimately, we can trust him because he gives us himself. And we said that God made this promise to Ahaz, offered the sign. But look at how Ahaz responded in verse 12. He said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And at first, this seems like, okay, that's the right answer. And he actually is basically quoting Deuteronomy 6.16 back to God and saying, don't put the Lord to the test. And he's right that, that the point of, of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, 16, is that we shouldn't test God when he makes promises. It's not our place to call into question the, the word of God because he is truth itself. And, and so the Ahaz could have said something like this from a heart of, of faith, saying, no, God, I trust you so much that I'm not going to ask for a sign. But as the, the book unfolds, though, we come to find out that Ahaz wasn't saying this from a position of faith, but actually from a position of unbelief. He didn't want contrary evidence, that he's like the person back in Romans 1 that we looked at who uh, sees it, he knows it, but he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, refusing to see the evidence that is already there. And I don't know about you, um, but or if you've ever had this experience of, you know, you're you're in an argument with your spouse for some reason, and and you you it goes on for a little while the conversation, you know, maybe you're an hour into the conversation, and then you just realize, you know, I'm really wrong. <laughs> Uh, this is always the way it is for me, personally, that I'm always wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, but then I think that there's this part of, of human pride that then you don't want to admit it, and, so the, and, you, and you essentially want to get yourself as the, the lawyer for yourself, defending yourself, even though you know that you're guilty. And it's because I think that as, as humans, we don't want to admit we're wrong. We don't want to, to be ashamed. Uh, we don't want to, to change course. And I think that's w the way it was for Ahaz here as well, that he had been staking his identity, his reputation on being afraid of invasion, preparing for invasion, uh, looking at this foreign power saying, no, this is, this is really important. And so to then hear the word of God from this mere prophet and then to change his foreign policy, change his plan, admit that he was wrong to be afraid, admit that he had been going in the wrong direction, that's, that's too humiliating. And we know that even from thinking of American politics, that politicians are not ones to admit that they're wrong or to, to, to want to change course. And it's the same thing for this king. And I think that that's also how, how you and I are as well, that, yeah, we don't like being afraid, 
We don't like our anxieties, but I think sometimes that we would rather choose our fears and our anxieties rather than the alternative of admitting that we were doing something wrong or that we were on the wrong course, that we would rather trust in our own sense of self-sufficiency than in the Holy One of Israel. So then look at how God finally responds in verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And you shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kingdoms you dread will be deserted. And so God is saying, if you're not going to ask for a sign, I'm going to to give you a sign um, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. But this is not the sign that Ahaz would have expected or probably would have asked for, because there's really three levels in which this is a very strange sign for God to give. Um, the, the, the first reason it seems strange is, you know, because if you, if you know philosophy, Occam's razor is that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. And if you find out that somebody has conceived, that a woman has conceived, the simplest explanation is not that it's the miraculous intervention of, of the Holy Spirit. Um, that it, it, it's, it feels strange. It's a sign that almost doesn't prove anything to one who is skeptical. But, but I think that that's exactly what, what God is after, that a sign that opposes the proud but then gives grace to the humble, um, and a, a sign that, that can really be, be seen only by those who are already seeing the reality of God that's already screaming from nature and from God's word that it's true, that he can be trusted. But then also it's strange because it would have, they would have thought is something strong, something powerful. You know, I mean, the kind of miracles that we would ask for to vindicate the promises of God. But then what God says is, do you want to really believe that I'm in control of nature, that I'm in control of creation, that, that I'm reliable? Here is a baby. Here's something weak. Here's something that's not powerful. And, and again, I think it's just the sign to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. But then finally, it's a strange sign to us because you would think he's giving the sign to Ahaz so that he'll trust him in regard to Syria and Ephraim. But as we know from the New Testament, this is fulfilled in, in Christ. This is not going to be fulfilled for another 700 years fully. Um, there's hints and foreshadowing of it in the, the birth of Isaiah's son in chapter 8. But, but still, this, there's a sense in which, nope, you're not going to see this sign. No, the people aren't going to see this sign. And so, so why this particular sign? And I think because this is the ultimate sign that we can trust God, that, that as God is laying down his, his card saying, no, you can trust me, this is the ultimate card that proves that God is reliable because his word did prove true to Ahaz that Ephraim and Syria were gone before Emmanuel was at the age of accountability to choose the evil or refuse the good. And then eventually Jerusalem fell to Babylon 
Babylon fell to Persia, Persia fell to the Roman Empire. And so you come to the, to the first Christmas 2,000 years ago, that first Christmas season, people were still afraid. And they were still asking the very same question that Ahaz was wrestling with. Can I trust the promises of God? And that's the, the same question that you and I face as well, as we're afraid, thinking, can I trust the promises of God? And what would it take for me to trust him? That Would I trust him if a virgin really conceived and bore a child? Would I trust him if that child was truly Emmanuel, God with us, fully God and fully man in, in one person? Would I trust him if that baby grew up to, to live a perfect life that we could never live, to die a sacrificial death on the cross? Would we trust him if that child grew up to rise again from the dead, to ascend into heaven, to come again in glory, to judge the living and the dead? Would we trust him if he promised life and the gift of the Spirit if we repent and trust in him alone? Because it's ultimately Jesus himself that is the sign that we can trust God, that his promises are true, um, that this is what we saw fulfilled in the book of Matthew, what Mark read for us in our New Testament reading, because God didn't just give us words of promise, that not empty words. He didn't just give us signs of, of visible things to vindicate it, but but when he's, when he's vindicating his, his promise and his trustworthiness, that what he gives is himself. And that's what Christianity is ultimately about. God giving himself in the person and work of Christ. And so that we can trust his promises and actually not be afraid of, of anything or, or anyone. And that is also then what, what we see, see here, that... Christ himself is the ultimate sign, Emmanuel, God with us, that, that, that God is in control of history and the course of events, and if we're in him, we don't need to be afraid of anything or anyone. And not surprisingly, then, then God gives us this, this ordinary sign to um, visualize, confirm the word of, of promise, that his body was broken for our sins, his, his blood was shed for us. And that, that what God gives us is himself. So when we trust in him, just as we're taking this bread and this juice into ourselves physically, that, that we're united to Christ by faith, that his life is our life. Our sin is counted to him. His righteousness is, is counted to us. And, and, and we can know in him. We can trust him. It, he's true. He's, he's reliable.